Association welcomes you to the Art Box, recorded in beautiful Virgin Valley, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, Mesquite, Nevada, and find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com. Hosting today's episode is Rochelle Knight and Steve Dudrow. Let's go have some fun. Today, we're in the office of Sue Fritzke. She is superintendent of Capitol Reef National Park. Sue, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi, and thanks for inviting me to participate in this. Um, yeah, so I'm superintendent of Capitol Reef National Park, which is in the middle of Utah, south central Utah. I've worked with the National Park Service, ooh, 38 years. 38 years? Yeah. What? You're only 49 years old. Well, that's what a lot of people you came think, as a baby, apparently. But um, yeah, and I, I started my federal career actually uh, 40 years ago in December, and uh, so started in the Peace Corps, and then eventually moved over into the National Park Service and had moved my way up. So where were you in the Peace Corps? I was in Ecuador. Okay. Uh, yeah, and uh, that was kind of a fun experience. I had graduated from college at UC Santa Barbara. I grew up in California and kind of got to the point of, oh my gosh, I guess I got to get a job. What am I going to do? Peace Corps recruiters came. I applied, went through the whole rigmarole, eventually got in and I had told them the one place that I don't want to go is anywhere in Latin America because (laughs) I don't think I'm going to be able to deal with the machismo attitudes. They gave me the options of Honduras, Guatemala, or Ecuador. That was interesting. I think they actually purposefully assign you to the places that you've said that you don't want to go, and I can't figure that out. But they put me in Ecuador, and uh, when they were trying to find a site for me to work in, I said, I don't want to live anywhere where it's hot and humid and buggy. (laughs) And my program manager looked at me and said, we are on the equator. That's what Ecuador means. And I said, I know, but you have this lovely thing. They're called the Andes. And so I worked from 10,000 to 17,000 feet in the oh, Andes. Oh, you did go to the Andes? I did. Wow. <laughs> I did, and it was very, very neat and cool, actually. So, I bet. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And uh, what I ended up doing there, um, which was a great experience for my subsequent career in the National Park Service here in, in the United States, is I actually worked for the Ecuadorian National Park Service. Okay. Um, yeah, and they had a whole bunch of national parks and ecological reserves that World Wildlife Fund had come into the country at Ecuador's request, and they had basically drawn circles on the map and said, these are places that you should think about doing something with. I worked throughout the Andes and all of the ecological reserves and national parks doing basically biological inventories. How interesting. Yeah, it was what a way to start the career. I know. It was great. <laughs> so they didn't listen to you. They sent you someplace machismo. Yes. But yet then they listened to you when you said, Yes. Yeah. I don't want hot. 
Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. That was really ideal. Yeah, I, I, uh, I grew up in California um, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and my family, my parents had moved from the East Coast, and uh, one of the things that they did when they moved to California was try to get familiar with what's California all about. And one of the groups that they decided to get involved with was the Sierra Club. In the process of doing that, they eventually they started participating in trips and then eventually started leading trips. And so my entire childhood was spent going on these amazing Sierra Club trips all over the place and doing backpacking and hiking and, and camping and, and all of that stuff. And so when I finally ended up working for the Park Service, my dad asked me one time, he says, how did you decide to go into the National Park Service? And I kind of looked at my parents and I said, did I have a choice? <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that great? Yeah, yeah. So no Disneyland or was there Disneyland thrown in there a little bit too? Uh, you know, no. I, I went to Disneyland with a church group one time, but otherwise we really, that was our focus was, was camping and going having adventures and hiking and and all that. I'm the youngest of three kids, and so I actually hated hiking when I was a kid because I had two older brothers, and everybody had longer legs than I did, and, and so it just drove me crazy. But as, as I got older and I got involved with Girl Scouts and things like that, and, and then realizing all of that stuff that I had learned and all of this experience I had had as a child growing up, really put me in a good place in terms of being knowledgeable about plants and animals and stars and rocks and yeah you name it yeah i don't want to get in trouble or anything but i would say you mean real things instead of pretend things yeah, <laughs> yeah. not that imagination's bad or anything yeah. but yeah yeah imagination in the forest is better than imagination in it's a small world after all yeah yeah yeah, it was a. Um, I really enjoyed my experience growing up in terms of just becoming very familiar in wilderness situations and in backcountry situations and in in nature in general. Um, I did a solo backpack trip when I was in eighteen and. I ran into a group and they said, aren't you afraid to be out here by yourself? And I said, the only thing I'm actually afraid of is people. Yes. So, yeah. Well, that's fantastic. What a way to grow up. Yeah, it was nice. <laughs> so you didn't like hiking too much when you were little. Does that mean that you got to ride on your dad's or mom's shoulders a lot? You know, I did for a while. Yeah. Um, and then I guess I got bigger. Then it was sort of like buck up, kid. You got to learn how to do this. <laughs> so one of the things that I still think is funny, and my brother will definitely attest to this, is I don't like the color red. And I finally figured out that the reason was because I had a day pack that my parents gave me that was red. And <laughs> when I was really little, and I carried my underwear, my socks, and the candy, it was just, I hated it because it was like, ugh, this thing that's weighing me down. It probably weighed five pounds. But, you know, when you're four, five, six years old, that hurts. For some reason, they've made backpacks better anyway. Mm -hmm. that I can carry a pretty heavy backpack now, and it doesn't bother me so much. But when I was younger, yeah. Like, let me get this thing off. Yes. Yeah, you know, and now I can just I, I don't need to drop it every time we stop. Right. Right. I don't know what they've done, but better suspension systems, you know, waist belts, 
make crazy things like that. Yeah. So when yeah. you got back from the Andes, mm-hmm. when you came down from the Andes, Indeed. what was next? Um, well, then I kind of reality hit me again that I guess I got to get another job. <laughs> I can't turn around and go back into the Peace Corps. So I ended up going to a reunion of my college at UC Santa Barbara and there happened to be a person there who worked in Yosemite National Park which is essentially the where I spent my childhood growing right. up she gave a presentation I didn't get to see the presentation but I went in to talk to my former advisor and he said did you get a chance to talk to Vicki Joe and I said no and he said well let's get her on the phone and she said, do you know Yosemite? And I said, yeah. And she said, here, I'm going to ask you some questions. If you were working in the visitor center in Yosemite Valley and somebody asked, how do I get from here to such and such a trailhead in Yosemite Valley? And I said, well, you just hop on the shuttle bus. You get off at stop number 11, and then you start hiking. And she and asked now me, I want the hard questions. Yeah. And she asked me these three, you know, what I would consider to be fairly simple questions. And then she's like, um, I'm going to hire you oh, um, wow. because uh, she had had somebody back out and she really needed to have that position filled really quickly. And she said, I'm going to hire you, but I need you to send your resume in first. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I started my park service career. Was that as a full time? I worked seasonally Seasonal. um, and I worked first the first couple of years in Yosemite Valley in interpretation visitor center doing walks and talks evening programs campfire songs in front of 350 people yeah all that good stuff and then I eventually decided to go back and get my master's degree and so I went to Oregon State and did my master's work up at Mount Rainier did that seasonally as well came back to Yosemite, worked prescribed fire for three years, seasonally, but seasons then were more like 11 months of the year. (laughs) And then eventually moved into resources management. So, and then I finally got a a permanent job at Redwood National Park, um, and that was seven years later. Resources management really put you on the track then to be management. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I started out doing prescribed fire and then becoming the lead for doing fire monitoring and fire effects monitoring and and then eventually shifted into resources management and worked as a biological technician and then all of a sudden was the lead biotech and then became an ecologist and, you know, just kind of kept on moving my way up slowly but surely and, uh, you know, having amazing experiences all along the way. The most significant experiences I think I've had, and it it was interesting this year watching what was going on when the fire was going through the Mariposa Grove in Yosemite and realizing that I was one of the people that was one of, we helped with some of the introduction of fire into that grove for the very reason of helping the trees regenerate, but also trying to protect them in case of a catastrophic fire and it worked really well. Good. And so it's just exciting to see that 35 plus years later, the work that you did actually had an effect. You know, we when we first moved to Colorado in 1988, that was the year of the Yellowstone fires. Right. And we remember well because of the beautiful sunsets <laughs> we would have along the Front Range. But we went back there maybe five, six years ago, and it was amazing to see where where we toured that were pretty much burned, you know, that 
they're full trees now. Right now, they're they're beautiful. Right. And yeah. So they they've certainly recovered. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, I think that was one of the things that I really learned. And you know, again, all of these experiences that I've had in the Peace Corps as well as uh, growing up and then my early years with the Park Service is just taught me the resiliency of nature you know we might think that we need to go in and touch it and do this and do that and manipulate and everything and we just need to be patient yeah 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 let nature take care of itself yeah yeah and then and then step in when we know that it can't anymore and um, and I think that's that's kind of where we are now things like climate change things like a lot of the invasive species that have moved into these areas that Mother Nature doesn't have a way to fight that. Those are the places that we do need to step in and help. So let me ask you, I think it was really interesting. When you came out here, you were, I think, deputy superintendent over four properties or parks Mm -hmm. in the San Francisco Bay Area. How great was that to do that where you grew up at? It was really interesting. Those are all national historic sites, um, national memorials, all really focused on history. Um, And my background, I have a master's in vegetation ecology and physical (laughs) geography. You know, what the heck is is somebody who's basically got an ecology background? What am I doing as deputy superintendent of these historic sites? And people ask me that. My boss was actually a botanist, so um, between the two of us, you know, we knew everything about natural resources and had no training in history, but you learn it. And it's, it opened my eyes to the significance of history and that need to have an understanding of cultural resources, the, um, you know, the, the thousands of years of Native American habitation, the, the hundreds, if not yeah, multi-hundreds of years of Euro-American habitation in the United States and uh, and just all of those complex histories that this country has in uh, absolutely fascinating places. Yeah, bad. Yeah. One of the one of the parks was um, Rosie the Riveter, World War II Homefront National Historical Park. Yeah, that's relatively and new, isn't it? It is. It's it's about I think eighteen years. When I say new, eighteen <laughs> yeah. years. Yeah. I'm showing my age here. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I worked with Betty Reed Soskin, uh, who just recently retired at 100 years old. Um, oh, okay. I've, I've so seen that. Yes. I got to I got to work with her quite a bit. That was fun, and uh, and then also got to work with a lot of the Rosies who are still alive. Some yeah. of them are actually still alive from from World War II, just as feisty now as they were back then. Absolutely adamant about their rights and um, you know the importance of their legacy in terms of really breaking some of those stereotypes about what women can do and what they can't do. Yeah, I'm sure they must be delighted oh, that, yeah. that there's a, a part for them. Yeah. It must warm their heart. I, I recently read a book, it was called um, Code Girls read that it's um is really good Mm -hmm. and i and i have to say that i went when i worked for at&t i went to a training in um in dayton ohio to what was called sugar camp and it was it was kind of it was kind of a pretty place and everything and i went it was nice i think it was like a week and a half 
And I didn't really realize what sugar camp was there for. It, it harkened back to World War II when the code girls were put on a train and not told where they were going to, and they went to sugar camp, and they were constructing the code-breaking machines that eventually went over to the U.K. Right, right. Yeah, no, amazing histories. Um, You know, some of these women that, you know, really took pride in how they welded. And uh, we worked on getting a visitor center up and running um, at Rosie eventually, and it required a set of stairs to be welded into um, an old gap in the building. And um, so the contractors welded this. And we brought the brought the Rosies in so that they could get a, a pre look at the building before really? they opened it up. They looked at the welds and they said, "These are men's welds." <laughs> <laughs> and the contractors were there, and they worked six hours in the middle of the night that night to fix their welds. Did so they that, really? So that they would be pretty. Not anything that anybody today would even notice, but the Rosies noticed and they felt like, here we have these 90-year-old women that are pointing out our welds and saying they don't look good. Isn't pride something? Yeah. 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 No. Take take pride in your work. Not just do work or a job, but take some pride in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they knew what, you know, what the ships that they were building, the Liberty ships and the Victory ships, that they knew that, you know, a lot of those were never going to come home. They wanted to do a job that would keep the ship together, but they also wanted to make it just look good and uh, look attractive. Yeah, well, looking good and working good are probably one and the same. Yeah. Now, so before we get on to how you got here you're female how were things with you starting and i'm sure that the park service was probably like anything else at the time when you started not that long ago well maybe long ago in terms of how things have come along Mm -hmm. like that How, how difficult was it for you to advance as a female yeah, I think it's kind of interesting because I, I go back to high school, actually, um, in that in my sophomore year in high school, you know, they always ask you, what, what is your career aspiration? And I went into the counselor and I said, well, I want to be a National Park Ranger. And, and she looked at me and she says, well, you can't do that because that's what men do. Really? I came home in tears. My dad came home. He's a, he was an engineer. And... He came home and uh, and I told him what had happened and he started laughing, which I didn't think was very nice. And he said, no, 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 here's the deal. When somebody says you can't do something, you will. <laughs> you will do it. And, uh, and he just knew that I was going to fight it. I got in, but then as time went by, moving over into prescribed fire, Fire is very much of a male-dominated part of, of um, any federal agency, actually. Um, and so you sort of have to stand your own. You know, you got to be able to stand toe-to-toe with uh, these guys. You know, you've got to meet all of the same physical requirements, all of the same savvy and everything else. And I'm a pretty quick study. You know, so you just, you, you sort of have to step up and really try, I think, a little harder. You have to work a little harder. Here's, here's where I wish Rochelle was here today. Um, when, when she got, her first job with the Forest Service was with the fire crew. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's hard. I mean, and you know, at some point in my career, I finally decided, okay, I can no longer do this because this is this is a young person's job, and I'm getting to the point where I physically can't get up to snuff with it. And so uh, I absolutely respect the people that do it. it. There were battles, and, you know, you had a lot of these sort of personal little, t- you know, tug-of-war in terms of where you fit in and what your capabilities are. I worked with a convict crew one time that... We had a fire in a giant sequoia grove, and that fire was going to get outside the bounds really quickly unless we stopped it. And uh, and I just called the the con crew over and said, "I need you to move that hose." And I just yelled at him, and I'm this little five foot six person, you know. And there's these big guys that are all six foot and over that are all convicted criminals, and. Uh, and it was like, nope, we need to do this, and we need to do this now. And uh, and it was like, you know, there wasn't any talk back. It was just do it, do it, do it. I helped, and uh, we got it, and we saved the fire so it didn't slop over. You know, it was a it was a really nice feeling. I'm there, sure you felt good, and they probably felt good as well. Absolutely. They were very, very happy about that. Yeah. So has it slowed you in your advance? You know, I don't think so. I think there have been times where there were clearly a roadblock that was put in front of me, and so I would just figure out a way to get around it, you know, figure out the people that I needed to work with. And uh, But you have to be aware that it's happening, and that's where I go back and I think, well, I lived for three years in Ecuador, and so I very much know what it is to live in a world um, where sexism is fairly rampant, at least it was back in the early 80s, um, which is when I was there. I think I'm probably more attuned to that than most people that have only been in the U.S. are, and I think it made it a lot easier for me to just go, okay, that's not going to work, i got to go this other direction. But it is interesting. I mean, I think when I started in the Park Service, two percent of the superintendents in the National Park Service were women, which I think means two, maybe three, and now we're up to something like 42 percent of the total number of superintendents are are women. You know, you're getting close to equity. I mean, there's always going to be jobs, there's always going to be the kinds of careers that, you know, women may not be particularly interested in, and as what, you know, and the same, you know, that men might not be particularly interested in. But I've really seen a, a very big transition over this career, really seeing integration throughout every single program. And uh, it's been a nice thing to see. Okay. Well, your staff here is, is also, I've been lucky to be in here for a month with them and you know, they're great shauna emily yeah. yeah and emily's one that's um we have a friend who at 24 years old got a permanent position and i was telling emily that i think emily was pretty close that age herself mm-hmm. you know which is pretty huge yeah 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 i um yeah i didn't get permanent until i was 32 i think something like that yeah <laughs> yeah, we had another friend that we worked with. Um, well, she wasn't a friend until we started working there at Chiricahua's, where we volunteered with. And she was on the computer every day. She was um, 
Um, her name's Perry Spicer, by mm -hmm. the way, and she's she just got another promotion, and she's at Suaro. She's pretty happy she went back east for nice. a while nice. for a promotion. But she was on the computer every day looking for a better job. Mm -hmm. And it so much reminded me of me. I can remember my, my supervisor out in California. She said you know, her boss wanted to know would I ever be happy, and she told him, um, you'd never want him to be happy because he's always looking for something better. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I've um, in my career, this is the 14th national park or you know national park service managed site that I've worked in. And uh, but I haven't really moved around a lot. I had two two different assignments where we were managing four different sites all at the same time you know that kind of is a little bit of a cheating thing uh, you know, it's not like I moved 14 different times well you're out west is that pretty much a normal thing that those who are out west stay out west you know I think so and those that are back east I stay back east and I you know I mean there's some cross fertilization that happens but um, even here in Utah, I have to remind people here in Utah, this is actually the farthest east I've ever worked uh, <laughs> because I've worked up and down the west coast. And so there's a thousand miles of west that's farther west than Utah is. I think you tend to focus on the areas that you're a little bit more comfortable with. And I don't like humidity. And I've been to places like Great Smokies, great place to visit, went there in the middle of the summer, it was hot, it was humid, it was buggy. And the leaf canopy, the tree canopy, really bothered me because it made me feel claustrophobic because it was so thick and dense that I couldn't see the sky. And I realized where I've grown up, my entire life has been in places where I could readily see the sky just because your tree cover was patchy. We can look out forever here. That's right. You wouldn't be enticed to go to the Everglades? No. <laughs> no, but, you know, there's a lot of places that I, I, I absolutely enjoy visiting um, because I, and the thing that I think I've learned is that, and Park Service people are just known for this, when we go on vacation, we go to other national parks. Of course. Um, yeah, because that's just what we do. But part of it is because these places are set aside for this country for a reason, and they are nationally significant for a reason. Even if you think you're not going to be interested in whatever that story is or whatever that that history is or that, you know, that natural history, when you get there, you find out it's a really interesting place, and there, there are amazing complexities. So I always learn, and that's one of the things that I very, very much enjoy is always being challenged. Yes. You know, my wife and I, we, she, well, her favorite national park is here. She loves Capitol Reef, but her next favorite, if I can say favorites, she loves Death Valley. Mm -hmm. And we live by there, so we're in Death Valley a lot. And we saw something, it was probably on Facebook, because we're looking on Facebook. It named Death Valley the worst national park. And, and she was beside herself. And what you just said to me, I, I shouldn't, I don't have a favorite, and I don't have a least favorite, because when you, and what you were just saying, every time you go to one, there's something there. There's something interesting there. There's something compelling there. You're gonna learn something. Yeah. And everyone, and I don't care if it's a historic battlefield, national monument, national park. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it really is amazing um, what this, what this country has in terms of these resources. And I just feel privileged to be part of it. I'd be, I'm privileged just to be around. How privileged am I today to interview you? Extremely. This, this is, this is <laughs> wonderful. Sue, you want to talk a little bit about climate change and how it's impacting, well, we can say specifically Capitol Reef, but you're a West Coast person, so we can get out of Capitol Reef and talk about the whole West Coast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen some pretty, just just in my lifetime, so I'm 63, in my lifetime, some fairly significant changes to ecosystems, sea level rise, saltwater intrusion and in estuaries along the coast of California, Oregon, and Washington. The elevation of uh, various species having to change because climate is getting warmer or it's changing. The way precipitation patterns are changing, temperatures are changing. Um, and realizing that the you know change is normal. I mean that's all part of nature. But change that is this quick, to the point that in 63 years I have seen changes, that's pretty significant. And in talking to people around here, ranchers, farmers, people are aware of it. They know that things are changing, and they're changing very very quickly. You know here at Capitol Reef, I think one of the things that we're really seeing is the the disconnect between extremely cold temperatures and blooming periods. So Capitol Reef has these very old orchards and those trees, some of which are almost 150 years old now, they will bloom at a certain time of the year because it's getting warmer. They'll start blooming in March. Well, our freeze times are still the same. And so we will get a hard freeze in April. It will wipe out all of the blossoms, which means we don't get any fruit production. And I think that's what happened this year, right? And that is what happened this year. We we had no stone fruit. Um, So peaches, nectarines, plums, apricots. Very depressing to go through some of these orchards and realizing that, you know, the, the staff have worked really hard to try to make these be productive to give people that opportunity to enjoy these orchards and we had a hard freeze for five days that just happened to happen at a a normal time but the temperature had actually gotten too warm and too quick those are the kinds of things that we're going to expect to see in the future and it sort of uh, makes you a little scared that there's a real disconnect there you know with with, um, pollinator life cycles and things like that that's also happening monsoonal effects of the timing, the duration of monsoons, the frequency, the intensity of these rain systems. I mean, we definitely saw that this year. I was going to say, you know, you know a little bit about that this yeah, year, don't you? Yeah, it's, it, I mean, this year has been particularly phenomenal. Um, we had the one big flood in June that, you know, everybody saw it on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. The reality is those particular drainages have now flooded something like 15 or 16 times this year. And the, the combination of that frequency and that severity of flooding in combination with the kind of visitation that we have. And 
the numbers of visitors that we have because our visitation has been increasing like crazy is hard because we have a lot of people coming here that don't know anything about uh, what to do in the instance of a flash flood. And if we get bigger ones and we get more intense ones, we're going to get people trapped, you know, knock on wood, and I won't because it'll be noisy. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think we've been very fortunate up to this point that we haven't had anything worse than just some bruises. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. what I hate to see is if it keeps up, mm-hmm. then you're going to have to close. Yes. Not, yeah. not the whole park, but you're going to have to close good washes where people can go down and enjoy bats hanging underneath the... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they won't get to see that anymore. Yeah. Although I keep on trying to figure out how to spin this, that the reality is you can still access these um, because you can access them on foot. Yes, you can. Um, And so it doesn't preclude people from still having those experiences. And we still do have... We do have areas that are fairly easily accessible, even if a flash flood is imminent. I think the park needs to think about how we are messaging um, as well. It's not that it's closed. It's closed to vehicular access for this period of time. However, you are welcome to walk as a pedestrian. Yeah, good point. Yeah. With the floods, you get to see how this was created. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I'm... I'm most excited about. Yeah. Yeah, I you know, we get a lot of questions here about the round black boulders, these big basalt boulders and and as you continue to move through the park from west to east, so the source of the basalt is to the west of the park and as that basalt moves through the park, it is mostly being shifted by water. And so those boulders get more and more perfectly round as you go farther east. And and it is a really interesting thing to see if you can do it in a safe place where you're not worried about your own welfare, but to actually listen to the water. And it's not just water, it's all the boulders and all the rocks that are becoming rounder and rounder as time goes by. And I think that that is just a amazing thing to realize this has been going on for millennia yes yeah and that's one thing we don't realize yeah well we do realize it but it but it's hard to conceptualize right yeah what is a million years nothing yeah as it gets down to it So, Sue, this is an art podcast, and we haven't talked about art yet. So I could get a pay decrease. I don't know what's nothing from nothing. Or I could get fired if we don't talk about art. So I will say that the reason you and I even know each other is that I lucked out somehow and was chosen to be artist in residence for night sky photography this past year. And it was an amazing, fun time. This park is wonderful. The people are wonderful. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you got your choice. You want to talk about artist in residence program first and your own art, art second or vice versa? Oh, I'll talk about my own art first. Good. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, um, I uh, started out doing photography, um, film photography. Oh, you mean like a dark room? No, my dad did that actually, which was was really cool. But I just did slides and, uh, but I was, uh, my dad would always critique my composition and, you know, and all that. And, and, uh, but I really enjoyed doing that 
and mostly focused, um, big surprise because I'm an ecologist, on plants and flowers and doing close-ups and doing just, you know, like still photography of particular types of plants that I thought were really just absolutely beautiful. And and then we moved away from film, and so I kind of got out of that (laughs) because, uh, you know, it just... um, well, and I think my my work got more and more complex, and so um, it was just sort of easy to push that aside. Um, the other thing that I did and still dabble in somewhat is botanical illustration or just scientific illustration. Okay. And it's just pen and ink drawing, um, again, because I consider myself to be a scientist, first and foremost. My illustrations tend to be very, very accurate and very meticulous. I don't take a lot of artistic license with them, which is which is interesting because, uh, you know, when I think about who some of my favorite artists are, it's people like Albert, um, like Bierstadt and Moran and and those folks that, you know, that did these um, the very large paintings of uh, national parks and natural areas and did it in a semi-realistic style that you could still see, you know, what it was that they were depicting. And, uh, and it's and probably, who, like who was your audience? I mean, right. It sounds like your audience wasn't someone who wanted to see a sunflower look like a huge out of focus mm-hmm. sunflower. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I was doing it um, for you know back in the olden days when uh, you know before we had digital photography and we could very easily move images into reports and stuff. I was actually doing a lot of that to include in reports and in documents that we were producing in the Park Service, and so so it was just kind of a fun thing to do on the side and you know kind of illustrate things to to kind of help with the understanding of what it was that we were trying to do. I think of the patience you must have had. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a lot. I mean, stippling in particular. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, and uh, I yeah, <laughs> it was um, you know, but I, and I don't do again. I don't do a lot of that now, just because my work is um, pretty time consuming. Yeah, work gets in the yeah. way a lot of things, doesn't it? Does. It? it does. Wait till you retire. I know. Even though know. you're a long way from that. Yeah. Though. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll get there eventually, and I'm kind of looking forward to having that time uh, to be able to get back into some of those. Yeah. Things. Just be careful. Don't be like me, because now I have no time to do any of my art, because I'm volunteering all the time. Well, but it's that, all fun. But that's what I hear. I hear people say, "I don't know how I had time to work because I do so much stuff when I'm retired that I don't even know how I used to fit that in." Yeah. So. <laughs> So I'm not going to be a bored person when I retire, that's for sure. Yeah. So before we get to artists in residence, yeah. let me ask you this, because my jobs, and I would have loved to have been a park ranger, but I just didn't know anything about it in those days. So I, I went to, I ended up in technology, and I, and people think I'm weird, but I loved every day except for two that I went to work during my 40-some years in that industry. Do you love coming to work every day? I do. I do. Yeah, I, I mean, I've had moments. I've had different um, experiences that weren't the most positive experiences, and I don't have to get into the details of that. But, um, you know, some sometimes where, you know, things really were hard, and you sort of wondered, is this really the career that I want to continue in? But I would say that probably 95% of my career I have absolutely 
enjoyed the work that I do and know that it's valuable and uh, you know I'm contributing. I'd like to say that we're both lucky mm -hmm. but I think I'm also of the opinion that you make your own luck. Yeah definitely. Yeah. Artist in Residence program. I'm sorry I deviated. Yeah, um, so when I got to Capitol Reef uh, four and a half years ago, the Artist in Residence program was had already been established. It was just a year old when I got here. And, and I came in and I, and I took a look at the program and I thought, well, yeah, we have to continue this. And I think part of this is because the very first national park that I worked in was Yosemite National Park. And Yosemite National Park was established in large part because of artists. The same with Yellowstone National Park. Artists did depictions of you know what they saw out there, and it led to the preservation of these areas for the world. And so throughout my career, I've seen the value of art and how art contributes to conservation and preservation. I really felt like we needed to continue that here, and I like the format of having one artist uh, focused on night skies because uh, we do have amazing night skies here um, as our you know we have found pretty much throughout Utah actually um, pretty amazing night skies with very little light pollution in most areas and so um, really really a privilege um, to participate in that but we've also been able to pull in artists who just do the full gamut of things from writing to poetry to dance to beadwork to textiles um, to painting, pen and ink, my, my forte. Yeah, there you uh, go. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's really been a pleasure to, and the thing that I actually really enjoy is um, I know this park somewhat well at this point, but every time we have an artist come in, they interpret what they see in a way that I never thought of. And that is one of the things that I think is really fascinating about bringing in new eyes. Sue, do you have any other interests? Um, I uh, have ridden motorcycles. I have a vintage BMW motorcycle with a sidecar. And uh, so I enjoy doing that. It kind of gets me outside of my box. Everybody gets a little shocked when they see me on I that bet. Because, because it just so doesn't fit the National Park Service idea. <laughs> who, who gets to ride in the sidecar? Do you have a bulldog with glasses yeah, on that I, rides in we, the... We, we had a little dog, and uh, she loved it. She was pretty fun. <laughs> okay, so no, I wasn't wrong no, then. Nope. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I just, I think I just like hiking, um, you know, just out exploring. But, you know, I, I continue to just be kind of nerdy um, in terms of, um, you know, ultimately I kind of get back to the things that I started out with in terms of hiking and botanizing and, um, and uh, you know, just, uh, you know, looking at rocks and trying to understand the geology. This place is amazing with 19 different geologic layers. I know and, about this 19 geologic layers. Yes. That was drilled into me by Shauna. Indeed. And uh, yeah, yeah. And it's just, uh, and I still don't know the names of all of them. And Zion only has five. I know. We're in competition. We, we won, actually. <laughs> like I was going to say, I think the competition's <laughs> over. Maybe, maybe give it another 40 or 50 million years. I don't think we'll be around to see the end of that. <laughs> Turning towards the future, what excites you about 
Capitol Reef or the National Park Service? I think the National Park Service, we're, we're moving in the direction of really trying to make sure that we're ready for things like climate change and that we're ready for expanding numbers of visitors and how do we, how do we plan for that? How do we make sure that we, you know, we accommodate and that we are still protecting these resources? in perpetuity and that's and that's one of the interesting things i think that's one of the interesting challenges about this agency is that that is our mandate and we are supposed to be thinking in thousands of years very good yes yes and it's you know so it's not just short term little let's do you know do this drastic change or that drastic change it's no we really need to be thinking over the long term the thing that i really enjoy is the fact that when i leave somebody else will come in they may insert their vision of how things are going to be but ultimately we get back to that initial initial mandate which is that we're protecting and preserving this place in perpetuity. I had the pleasure the other day to interview an artist, Kim Garrison Means. Mm-hmm. Kim Garrison Means is a conceptual artist and part of United Catalyst. Kim is the owner of Mystery Ranch in Searchlight, Nevada, and is one of the major driving forces for Spirit Mountain, that is the Avikwame National Monument that should be designated shortly. Deb Holland came the other day to a meeting and she got to meet Deb Holland. And she described Deb Holland, I really like this. She said, Deb Holland is an elder for everyone. That's right. And I really like that. Yeah. Almost brought tears to my eyes. That is yeah. really good. Yeah. Well, she, she so represents the thousands of, of years of human occupation and you know human habitation of these areas and uh, my particular race my particular background we typically think in hundreds of years and think that's a long time and uh, it's nice to have people in the agency and within the department that really represent that much longer time period yes yeah you know, one of the things we did talk about the other day too at her she invited us to her ranch which is um, in the Mojave Desert and we talked about because all of us, uh, all of us there, we all have something to do with the historic preservation. Okay, and it was that we look at, particularly for the Native Americans, when we see petroglyphs, they're petroglyphs of people who aren't here anymore. Right. Okay, and that's not right. You know, they're they're relatives, they're here still. Yeah. And we need to think about that. Yeah. Yeah, so if somebody goes and desecrates those, mm-hmm. I, I likened it to me desecrating a book that my grandmother gave me. Right, right, right. And it's, um, yeah, and I mean, here in this park, you know, we've got um, 150 years of Euro-American efforts in this whole general area, and then we have eight to 10,000 years of, uh, of human and it is really amazing to think about that and that you know you you go and look at a petroglyph panel and you may see multiple layers because you had different groups that came in at different times that wanted to put different kinds of messaging up on these walls layer upon layer upon layer Um, i kind of think of it as the park has 19 geologic layers and it has hundreds of human layers as well 
Yeah, that's why I never thought of it. Yeah. Last question. What's inspired you this week? This week? I'm be, being survive, surviving another flood. Yes. <laughs> on Wednesday or whatever. Yeah, it was. surviving another flood. Um, I, you know, to be honest with you, I just got back from a, a trip where I met with all of the other superintendents for the Utah National Park sites. And uh, so that was in Kanab. Yeah, and no, that was up in Lehigh. And okay. uh, and so we went to uh, uh, to Timpanogos Cave, and uh, got to got to actually do a tour of the cave and. Uh, and it's just, you know, again, it's just one of those things of um, you're meeting with a like-minded group of people, um, talking about a lot of different issues, commiserating um, in the frustrating parts, but also being inspired by what we are all doing um, and how we are all contributing to the preservation of these really significant places. Well, so we appreciate you. We appreciate you. your staff. And we appreciate all the staffs of the National Park Service. They give me, my family, my friends a lot of pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for doing this today. Absolutely. Thank you. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, visit us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com.